Joe. Brad, how are you, buddy? Good. Tell me the news, Joe. What's the news? Uh, what you got? Not a lot of news. That's the. Good. I mean, I did see something yesterday how PayPal is now allowing cryptocurrency deposits into the wallet at PayPal, and you yeah. can trade pay crypto across any other PayPal customer. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you can send it outside of PayPal yet. PayPal yet, other than off ramp, I'm not sure. But thought that was kind of interesting. I saw Uganda's looking at a central bank token. Um, good MIT study out on crypto and uh, fueling new business opportunities. So there's a lot of good stuff. That's the funny part. Right. Everywhere you look, like what we're looking at on a day-to-day -day basis, it's all positive. And there's <coughs> awesome stuff being built. Yeah, um, absolutely. At the top layer um, info cycle because of pricing, it just all looks doom and gloom. Yep. Um, or at least sideways or who knows what's happening. Uh, but at the core of it, it's still happening. So so I, I still feel good. I'm still bullish. I'm I'm I am feeling good as well. I mean, you know, who knows? We may have another capitulation, but yeah, whatever, whatever. All right. So um, let's see uh, the uh, Ethereum network um, yesterday. Uh, the merge was completed on the Ropsten testnet. Hmm. Let me get this up. And uh, at first it looked like uh, there were a ton of problems with it um, because some, some data was missing, et cetera, et cetera. But it turns out um, there was some, so part of what happens in these, in these testnet uh, tests of the merge of the merge is that, you know, in order for this to all be successful, all of the different Ethereum clients um, that people use from command line interfaces to GUI interfaces, whatever, they all have to be upgraded and fixed and changed to, to work with proof of stake, right? It can't function the way it used to function. And so it requires all of these individual developer teams to upgrade and, and that's how we'll know if the Ethereum merge is going to work or not, because if, the clients determine, you know, blockchains getting blocks getting written, and proposals being made to write blocks and, and transactions, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, it looked bad. Uh, not bad. It looked not great yesterday. Not like devastating, but just not great. Well, it turns out that um, the almost all of the things that went wrong yesterday had to do with different clients not changing configuration parameters or there was one client that had discovered a bug like two days before the merge on that testnet failed that that merge on that testnet went into effect and they were working on fixing it so the conclusions i'm getting from all the different people i'm reading are that it was actually a um, pretty successful test so the key now is over the next few weeks they will be uh, trying to break it, right? Um, that's the whole goal of having it running on a test net is to get people using all these different clients to do weird things, out of the ordinary things, crazy things, to try to break it so they can find other bugs that may be present in the system. But all in all, it looks like after they fix the configuration issues um, and the bug is addressed that um, things went really well uh, overall. So... This is actually pretty exciting news because from my perspective, betting on Ethereum right now um, post-merge is, is a really good thing. Um, obviously, that's not financial advice, but um, I, I'm very close to pulling the trigger on some new strategies. 
and um, uh, accumulating more Ethereum. So um, I, uh, I very am very happy that this went through. Now, does that mean it'll still happen in August? Who knows? Maybe not. But we'll see what the bugs come out. Um, what bugs come out of it when it does uh, have some more testing over the coming weeks. But right now, uh, things are looking pretty good. You're muted or something, dude. Yeah, I was having an allergy attack there and forgot. All right. But um, hasn't the issue always been not so much um, where uh, Ethereum gets to, where it's going? I think we all know, um, I think it's all agreed that once it gets there, the deflationary aspects and all the other pieces make it a solid uh, buy to me long term. Yep. Um, I think the issue has always just been implementation risk, right? Yep. Like handling off this shift. And, yep. and so anytime they pull off something successful, um, because they're being super cautious, uh, you know, things keep getting delayed. And, and, and I like that myself. Um, but each time they do something positive, I think that's a mitigates that sort of uh, execution risk that everybody's worried about or impl implementation risk. So yep. all good news. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm very excited. I, I am. Um... You know, it's funny. I'm I'm becoming. Uh, you know, I still love Phantom. I still think Avalanche has a ton of potential. Um, I, I'm very sour on Solana these days. I, I don't think um, they don't seem to be able to get out of their own fucking way. Um, but I I am becoming more and more uh, inclined to look more closely at things like Polygon and Layer Twos on Ethereum. Um, for kind of the future. I, I still think Phantom will succeed. I still have investments in there. Um, I still think Avalanche will succeed. I think they will both probably niche down to some extent. Avalanche is focusing a lot on games and the subnet capabilities, which I think is a smart move. But um, I also think, um, you know, layer twos are very interesting. I'm also uh, becoming a little more interested in Binance BNB uh, chain. Um, after they started doing side chains as well, but all that is to say, I'm actually um, I'm actually pretty excited about what's going on with Ethereum, and um, I think that um, pushes me to look more at um, the other layer twos. So anyway, Arbitrum and optimism and Madison, all those guys. Yeah, so let's talk about optimism. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been exciting there the last couple of days, if I'm not mistaken. So, so optimism tries to send um, Wintermute is a market maker, right? And so they decided for the airdrops, they wanted to hire a market maker um, to uh, facilitate people dumping their airdrop, I guess. So they decided to give Wintermute $20 million uh, to, or grant, yeah, basically give it to them uh, from the, the fund, the foundation's partner fund um, to market make on behalf of the OP token. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the folks at Wintermute um, sent an address uh, that wasn't on the layer two yet um, in a smart in a Gnosis safe wallet. Um, so they couldn't get so OP send, uh, Optimism sends the $20 million to Wintermute um, and they did a test transaction. They sent the $20 million and Wintermute could see it in the wallet. 
The problem is, is because of whatever has to go on behind the scenes to enable it in a, in a Gnosis multi-sig wallet, um, they can't get the money out. So the $20 million is locked in. Now they say that there's potentially a technical solution to the problem and they will are going to work to implement that. In the meantime, Optimism sent them another 20 million. Hmm. Now, you know, we all make mistakes, but somebody pointed out yesterday on Twitter that it's not enough to see that the money got to you. Um, you need to really, especially with complex layer twos, you really need to make sure you can actually move the fucking money that got to you. So if you're sending a test transaction to someone, not only make sure that it got there, but also make sure that they can take it out of where you sent it to. So um, anyway, big screw up. But then um, today I was over time to see if my uh, my new pal, uh, Gabriel Shapiro, um, uh, who is the general counsel at Delphi Digital, had any more on the Loomis um, situation. And um, let me find this. Oh, here it is. So. Um, and I found how he had a little rage going about the optimism fuck up because he's, he said that they were actually, um, I guess a hacker was able to get to that wallet where the money was locked sooner in the technical solution than uh, Wintermute could and started stealing the money, right? So optimism tweeted and said, well, we could basically fork the chain and set it back to before that mistake happened, right? Which is a solution that, you know, Ethereum did way back when, uh, when the DAI uh, was hacked. I mean, the DAO was hacked. So, but he's pissed off because he's basically saying that optimism and optimism is the one, don't forget, that was uh, uh, talking negatively about other layer ones, alternative layer ones a few weeks ago and being Ethereum maximalists and talking about decentralization. Mm -hmm. Basically what Gabriel's saying here is if you can do a fork and you're doing market making, not only are you now putting yourself in legal jeopardy as a project um, because of those steps, but you know, the fact that you can do all this means you're centralized, right? You're not, um, you're not a decentralized protocol in any way, shape, or form. And so basically he's saying, just do the fucking fork. You've already put yourself in jeopardy. Get the money back and then um, uh, do that. So they're saying they're not going to do it. Um, but I just found the whole thing pretty interesting. Um, you know, the kind of the holier-than-thou uh, rhetoric that they usually spew out. Um, you know, it, it looks like there's still centralized control over that. Now, I wouldn't mind that because it's new. And they want to be careful in there, putting in checks and balances on the network. But you, then don't be out there trying to be, you know, the decentralized um, Ethereum maxi mavens of the world uh, if you're not getting there anyway. So very interesting that all this is happening. Um, I expect mistakes. I expect human beings to make mistakes. I'm not saying they shouldn't. But, um, you know, there are ways to prevent it. And it brings up other things. Wow. Got that, Joe? That's almost like crypto mom kind of thing. You know, it's like nothing against Hester, but it's like we've got Brad now loose out there lecturing everybody on. Uh... 
<laughs> I'm actually just, I'm just repeating what Gabriel said. No, but hey, if you weren't they the same ones that sent? Yeah, we're going to the same place. All right, aren't they the ones that sent out like a hundred million to the wrong address or something? Oh no, 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 no. no. Uh, that's that's not them. No, but they are the ones that we talked about them a couple of weeks ago on the show, where we talked about that that tweet and promotion they were doing, talking about you know decentralization and purity of Ethereum yeah. and fuck all the alt one alt L ones and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, um, yeah. you know, sometimes you need to be careful about the shit you spout. Uh, What's that old thing? People in glass houses shouldn't be throwing rocks. There you go. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, let me see here. That's all the optimism. I think I got all that. Yeah. So um, checkout.com launches 24 seven stable coin settlement in partnership with Fireblocks. So essentially, people using uh, checkout.com can accept companies using checkout.com mm -hmm. for their gateway can now accept stable coins and have them immediately settled to fiat in their bank account. That's pretty impressive. That's very impressive. I think we were having a similar conversation about this the other day. Well, so that <laughs> is that's in the U.S. and it's all like um, I am assuming U.S. Let's check and see. It's USDC. Well, yeah, there you go. Okay, so USDC is functioning in in a way that yeah, just like the way our phones function now. You know, when you're going through the airport security, you don't have to show ID. Yeah, you know, you just show the phone. Yep. And and checkout.com is already in partnerships with Coinbase, Crypto.com, FTX, and MoonPay. Oh wow, that's big. Yeah, I don't know if they're publicly traded or not. So would you um. Would you use that in lieu of like Stripe or something? Or yeah, that... I think that's the idea. Let's take yeah. a look because I've never, I have, I've heard of them, but I haven't looked at them before. So mm -hmm. let's see what they're all about. I think they're a gateway like Stripe. Yeah, yeah, it's a payments platform like Stripe. Hmm. That's that's exactly what it is. So, so that's now if you've got them integrated in your shopping cart, you can accept stable coins and dump it straight to fiat if you want to. So you could hook your business bank account up to this. Exactly. Have it. That's great. Yeah. So Material Indicators needs this. Actually. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Quite a few companies need because it's a real pain in the ass to take crypto. Um, it, it's um, it, as payments, especially in our case because it's a subscription service, mm -hmm. um, and currently there are only a couple of uh, customized ways with custom code to uh, set up some kind of uh, subscription model. And um, anyway, the ability to automatically dump to the bank account is freaking yeah. awesome. awesome. Yeah, I would, don't, if I remember right, couldn't we do stuff like that back in 2017, 18 before then they made it only on personal accounts? Wasn't it pretty easy to hook up? I think I had a couple so companies. Coinbase had a Coinbase has a gateway um, mm -hmm. that's just crypto. And it'll let you set it up so that you automatically dump to stables, right? So if you accepted Ethereum, um, you could have it automatically as soon as it hits your uh, Coinbase wallet, that wallet, the merchant wallet, you could have that automatically convert to stables. But mm -hmm. then you would have to manually uh, move it into your bank account. So that's the only one I know of that had kind of that auto conversion uh, that way so that yeah. merchants weren't at risk of a drop in price on a non-stable coin uh, token. That's the one I remember too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, very interesting. Um, Boba Network, who I've interviewed in the past, uh, the founder of that project, is launching on Phantom. And this is really interesting because Boba is a layer two. 
Um, and so they're essentially bringing layer two functionality to Phantom. But the the idea behind Boba, I think we talked about him the other day, actually, when we were talking about um, artificial intelligence and, and singularity DAO, um, Boba's uh, intent is a hybrid blockchain model. So the idea behind it is, is for people that are using large quantities of data that need um, significant processing power, they provide an, an automatic gateway to things like AWS, et cetera, that will allow you to process things for artificial intelligence, machine learning, whatever it may be, data crunching, whatever, um, and then have it have it live back on, on the blockchain. Now, they originally are Ethereum layer two because, you know, Ethereum fees, Ethereum speed, et cetera, et cetera. But I find it really interesting that they're going to integrate with Phantom. Um, I think it's a good sign for Phantom because from my perspective, Boba is like one of the few layer twos that has a use case for being on chains like Phantom that are already high speed, low cost, right? The, their, their, their advantage is, not, is no longer the high speed, low cost. Their advantage is the hybrid model. So that developers that want to do AI work and that kind of thing can use Boba on top of Phantom, have incredibly low fees, but still be able to process and do massive data uh, work. Um, so I found this really interesting that they would move on to Phantom, but um, they are doing it. Hmm. So using hybrid compute, Web3 developers can now access Web2 computation and data sources like machine learning and artificial intelligence systems, advanced financial modeling tools, state-of-the-art gaming engines, or social media integrations. This can connectivity promises to unlock in innumerable use cases and applications formerly considered too expensive, slow, or demanding to execute on-chain. So th this is a really cool move. I think this is a great move for uh, Phantom, right? It gives them additional use cases for people to be on the chain. Um, it's smart for, for Boba because they can bring in a whole new, you know, uh, group of developers. Um, so all in all, I, I really like, um, I really like this move. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Phantom, speaking of Phantom again, it's Phantom day. Uh, a new platform called Solace is now available on Phantom and it's an insurance program. Um, and they actually, I was reading up a little bit on them. They are cross chain, I believe. Uh, bu -bu -bu -bu. So covers 220 covered protocols. So spirit swaps, kabuki swap, beefy, et cetera. <clears throat> you can um, insure your investments. Uh, I believe against hacking. I don't know if this, I don't know if Solace does peg protection uh, like some do. Uh, I don't know if they say they do or not. So how much, um, what percentage of the portfolio do you allocate towards the insurance? I have no, I have never insured an investment in my life. I don't know. I've never done anything in crypto. I don't know. Yeah. Probably. Wallet coverage, personalized coverage, applies a better experience at every stage, dynamic pricing, fast payouts, hassle-free claims, cross-chain. Yes, yeah, so they are on Ethereum and Polygon as well as now Phantom. Um, wallet coverage. So could you move stuff from like your Phantom wallet to your Ethereum wallet like you would normally go through a bridge? No, no this is like this is just to ensure what's in your wallet. And I think the investments you make in other yield farms and liquidity pools. So if you were in a spirit swap liquidity pool, they got hacked. 
they would cover your investment in hmm. spirit swap in that liquidity pool. Nice. Yeah. So really good to see. And again, you know, this is another kind of thing that um, you definitely want to see on your chain, right? Is you want to be able to have these kind of insurance policies available. They also have staking pools. Uh, where was that? For their token? I guess so. Let me see. I don't know if they have phantom based ones. Probably not. Probably only Ethereum. Let me see. Nope. I don't know. Anyway, uh, good news. Great to see it happening. I'm glad to see it moving over there and uh, we need it. So this, I found this really interesting. Uh, Robin DG of Liquify uh, posted this analysis of tokenomics, um, how tokens are allocated previously uh, in crypto versus by projects versus how they're being allocated now at their initial raise. So in 2017, 55% of tokens went to a public sale. 11% went to community incentives or distributions. 15% went to company reserves or the treasury. Uh, 2% went to investors. And 17% went to the core team. Um, fast forward to today, <clears throat> and you could, it's funny to see these, look at this shift here. Like if you look at 2017 and then 2019, how it went from 55 to 30% to 10% of the public sale, uh, going to public sale with 51% going to community incentives and distributions. Now we're at 4% for partners and advisors, 3% public sale, 44% community incentives and distribution, 22% to the company reserves or treasury, 10% to investors, and it's back to 17% for the core team. Hmm. So dramatic shift from public sale right back here. I mean, remember in 2017, everything ICOs. was sold in the ICO. Yeah. yeah, everything. Now they're only giving up like a tiny percentage of tokens in public sales. Because most of it's going to VCs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mean, and other investors. VCs, you know, yeah. I mean, VCs whales. are 10%, right? 44% um, are for distributions and incentives. So I'm assuming that's liquidity pool stuff, you know, yeah. stuff that you're going to incent later on, staking, whatever. And then more for partners and advisors. I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, yeah, public sale, who really wants to do it? I mean, it's retail. It gets you exposed to all the regulatory stuff. Exactly. Exactly. So it's interesting. And what the question I have is, is do we get to a point where there is never a public sale? No, I think that's, I mean, it looks to me like it's shifting to an IPO-ish model. Yeah. You know, where all of a sudden, you know, one of these big players goes public on a non-crypto market. Right. Because of that. I mean, before, see, I always remember, this is my interpretation, is that when the Jobs Act was passed that, you know, created all the sort of crowdfunding uh, type sites that, crypto kind of emerged as a, you know, the ICO in particular emerged as kind of a loophole way to fundraise. And I don't right. say that in a negative way. Hey, you know, great. It's so right. Walk through the door. Yeah. Um, you didn't have to pay $75,000 to attorneys to get up and go. Yeah. You just got going. And then everybody who had crypto out in the market looking for a place to spend it, to do something with it said, Hey, let's invest and seed all these, you know, new businesses and see what happens. Right. So, you know, now it's kind of in that. So it kind of came IPO first, yep. IPO on idea, basically. And 
now it's kind of back to the more thorough model of, you know, you got to get to certain thresholds before you access that capital. And as far as IPOs, do you ever get there? I don't right. know. <laughs> well, and I think this is, I mean, what Robin talks about in the thread is this community incentive allocation makes a ton of yeah. sense, right? I like it, that. Yeah, it, it, it does make a ton, ton of sense. And he goes through the thread and talks about, you know, how you have to think about this. You got to think about how many people you think you'll need if you hit your goals in two years, right? Or five years or whatever. Like, do you, are you going to have enough funds on hand to pay those people as you grow and you need more people, more developers, more marketers, more biz dev, more whatever. You, you've got to think about that in advance. Like it's just kind of standard business planning 101, right? What, what yeah. do you expect you're going to need? Is there a revenue stream that will augment what you're able to pay people? if you're successful, right? If that's the case, then maybe you don't need to allocate as much to uh, the team now, but you've got to make sure you hit your goals or you're not going to have enough money to pay people. So um, anyway, I, um, th I found this really interesting. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh, I think it makes a ton of sense. The other thing he talks about is, is the fact that, <clears throat> excuse me, is the fact that, um, you know, look, the problem we have in this space is, early investors and team dumping on retail investors, which kills projects, right? I mean, that's what's happening. Um, and it happens over and over and over again. So this kind of analysis, this kind of stuff where people are saying, hey, let's stop and plan this properly. Let's stop and make sure that what we're building is sustainable and that we're going to have the revenue to keep operating, but we also are not going to put it, make it so that, um, Retail gets dumped on, fle flees the project, and the whole thing dies, right? And and obviously, those are the things we have to be thinking about now. The whole greedy short-term gains kind of stuff is basically out the window in a bear market. Well, I think it's probably out of the window to a certain extent. I don't want to say, I guess, permanently yeah, with all I, the regulation coming into this space. I mean, yep. I don't know to... Look, I see a lot of models now where, you know, there, there are lockups on tokens. I mean, if you look at like public oh, totally. equity markets, there weren't there, there weren't always lockups on IPO shares. No. You know, you could dump right out of the gate on retail. Yep. And I would argue that there's a couple of places in there before the IPO where stuff does get dumped on retail. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now it has lockups. You know, if you're inside friends and family, you know, you're locked up. I mean, I, I was always six months. I assume it's still that. But you see things like that over on, you know, insiders and in these crypto deals where, you know, they can't sell the founder shares and things like that. They can't right. sell for a while, but also investors. So to me, most investors, I mean, if you look at the way the ICOs were done in the early days, um, you know, there was always that kind of I might get the words wrong here, but there was like a private sale and there was a pre pre sale. There was a pre sale and there was a sale. Yeah. And there were no lockups there anywhere. Yeah. And so everybody was dumping from the first sale into the next round. And it got to by the time you got to the public sale, you could basically have sold, recouped like five times the money you put in and still hold 50% of the original exactly. shares or tokens. And that was all being dumped on Main Street, which is yep. what, you know, SEC doesn't want. So that kind of stuff is pretty much, that's all gone. Yeah. So absolutely. to me, it seems like this is all just natural progression as it ma matures. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. It's the it's the market maturing. 
getting smarter, realizing that if they want to have, look, there will still be people that are going for short-term gains, but a lot of the people you and I talk to are people that are really trying to build for a long-term future, right? They're, they're not, they're not the, the builders still here that didn't retire because they made a ton, a ton of cash. Um, The builders that are still building, even though they made a ton of cash are the ones that are trying to build something long-term, right? They have an ethic, they have an attitude. So a lot of this stuff's changing. Um, there, I don't have a clue what this chart is, and I don't got to try to figure it out. Um, um, uh, so anyway, I'm glad to see this. I'm glad to see the numbers changing. He says here, vesting lockup periods are three to four years for the core team members. Most common is a four-year vest with a one-year cliff. Yeah, that's um, standard. Yeah, surprising to see no cliff used, but could be due to the fluid nature of crypto slash dials and bootstrapping early equity. So there are some still not doing a cliff. Um, other core team vesting trends are weighted vesting, non-linear vesting plans, front weighted, back weighted are used in 7% of vesting schedules. Immediate unlocks are in 5.7% of vesting schedules. Um, investors, VCs usually have a lockup period for two years with zero to 12 month cliffs. Um, and those lockups obviously prevent the sales. The problem is, you know, as soon as that unlock happens, everybody runs, right? Because now retail is starting to get smart enough to know, oh, yeah, vesting unlock for the VCs is in 18 months. I'm getting the fuck out in month 17, day 25, right? Because I don't want to be on the other side of that dump, which, you know, it would almost be cool to have like some kind of randomization of it where it's like, okay, you five investors, you want to be in our, our VC pool, Um not only are you having a vesting schedule, but at the end of the vesting schedule, there's going to be a randomized distribution of the tokens out to each of you in in different lot sizes. And it, that, that'll happen over a period of time, but it won't happen all at once. And it won't happen um, so that everybody's not getting them all at the same time, right? So you don't have three VCs all dumping simultaneously because they all got theirs in the same day and they want to beat the other VC to it, right? So meter it out, maybe super fluid. Um, anyway. Yeah, I guess that, that's something that's like, you know, that's one of those things, as they say, has plagued philosophers for thousands of years because they've been trying to solve that on the equity side too. Yeah. Just the, that game theory between when the VCs start dumping. And I think what happens over time is if you have the right VCs in there, you realize that, you know, it kind of goes back to those models that the rebasers were pushing, the, you know, the three threes, the hold it stuff, you know, nobody wants to dump because one, why take the tax hit? And two, um, you know, where are you going to put it? Yeah. What's the next place you're going to put it in? That's always the other thing to think about. So I like seeing these maturity things come to the market. I think that there will always be the edge though. You know, we talk about this a bit because sometimes it's always a bit like, Oh, it's almost sad that it's maturing and growing up. You know, the fun stuff's kind of uh, <laughs> gone. But then you think of all the carnage in the fun stuff and you're like, well, I guess it wasn't that much fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, there'll always be stuff out there. Of course. So, you know, this is just kind of where, you know, this is the tools that allows the exit liquidity come in for all of us that have been in for a while. Yeah, so it's, interesting it's, that, it's interesting that more of these VCs don't do things like, Alchemix or other lending protocols on their investments, right? It's like, you know, if you're a VC, right? And you you want to pay out, you know, 
I'm, I'm in assuming they still have like standard LP agreements and that aren't just a year long or something. Maybe they are. So this wouldn't be workable, but you know, if you're a VC, but you've got to cash out in some way, or you're an investor or an angel investor, or whatever, why not? If you think the project has legs and you think it's viable for the long term, why not just say, okay, I'll, 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 I'll make part of my agreement that when I get my investing done, I'm automatically going to send this into a lending protocol and rather than sell, and I'm just going to sit on the tokens and I'm going to take 50% of my value up front, right? And and then the rest, we'll just let it ride and see how well you guys perform. Well, it's similar to, um, you know, the, what you do with options, you yep. know, in publicly traded companies where you go f borrow against those options. Exactly. You know, and go buy your house and your car and do all that stuff. Um, you know, it's kind of de-risking too in some ways because it takes that money off. Now, in those mechanisms with the options, I think if they go belly up, yeah, they're coming back for the house and the car. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So Alchemix sounds like a much collateral. better play here. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, maybe that's a protocol we should build, Joe. I like that. For venture capitalism. Yeah, no, there like was a, a lot part of, of the agreement. I remember running to somebody a couple of years ago, and you know, I talked about this before too, that the closed end partnership interest in um, a lot of these like VC funds, I think it was group out of London. I want to say collar capital sounds right. And they go around buying up funds from people or portfolios from funds. So they create a secondary market for non-liquid assets. Uh -huh. So if we could do that with say stock options on, you know, us tech companies, um, something similar, that would be pretty cool. You just need a fund and you yeah. go buy them at, you know, whatever you can negotiate. Yeah. So um, that would be another option. Absolutely. The, the and, other and thing. Tokenize that. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is, you know, I would say as well um, in, in their SAFT agreement that if the investors do want to sell, right, like in a given time frame or at a certain size of sell, that the first thing they have to do is go OTC or actually maybe the first thing they have to do is go back to the projects and say, Hey, market price is X. I want to sell my tokens. Let's do an OTC deal. You guys buy them back or go to an OTC trading desk and do that or do the lending model, like, like build in the safety layers. So it's not a dump. Remember also uh, revest and their NFT uh, system. Their first, uh, their first use case was vesting of tokens, right? So if a, if a founder is sitting on tokens for four years um, and can't touch them, the they could actually cash out some of their tokens by selling the tokens locked into an NFT, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody believes the project's going to do well and one of the members needs cash, then they can sell the NFT with some segment of their tokens. They're not dumping on the open market and those tokens are still locked up in that NFT for some set time frame, right? So I think there's a lot of creative ways for these problems um, to be solved of wiping out retail investors with venture capitalist dumps, but and team dumps. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because we're talking about you know, kind of like I don't know mature problems here, and then you yeah. look back and you go think about all the rug pulls and all the other nonsense that goes on, and you're just like. It's kind of interesting how we're talking about this now. Yeah. You know, um, to control sort of price volatility. Um, but yet the other part is where most of the carnage is. <laughs> <You> know, <so. laughs> 
Exactly. Well, look, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the dumping that happens on retail kills projects, right? Oh, speaking of which. Comments? Speaking of killing projects, that's Luna no. 2.0. Yeah, what is that, 246? Yeah, what did we say? Did we say that there was going to be, you know? We, we know it was not going to go anywhere. Of course, that. it's a yeah. devastated brand. Doquan is still there. I mean, what the fuck, you know? And what what makes me sad about this is two things: the people who still believe, right, and jumped right back in and took their drop and didn't sell it, you know, and fucking get burned all the way down because they believe in dough. Um, and the projects, the projects who weren't smart enough to take the money from Polygon or Phantom or wherever and deploy while this was going on, they didn't have to shut down their project here, mm -hmm. make the changes they had to make for, for 2.0, but deploy yourself on some other fucking chains and take the money from people. You know, now they're sitting on shit. And I, it, to me, to me, the people who did it a second time, I have less sympathy for. <laughs> I'm sorry. Who invested know? again? Yeah, the people yeah. who are sitting on it and believing in Do Kwan, I, I'm sorry, you had your you had your shot to figure your shit out, you know. The you, only thing to believe in on this one at that point was whether the VCs were going to come in and bail it all out, right? In a way that you did okay, and you bet that decision point, but you can't bet on Do Kwan execution risk decision point because he's already proven he can't do it. Yeah, exactly. So, so yesterday Tara announced. Let me see my. Where is it? Let me find my tweet. So Terra, Terra announced Terra Bridge version two is now live on Terra Mainnet, right? That's oh, that's it. good. Let's deploy a bridge now. I said, let's, it's a bridge from nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because usually there's the bridge to nowhere, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. just like, I don't know. I had this whole series of fucking, oh, this was funny too. Kyle Samani, who's that, who's MultiCoin founder yeah. right i get these alerts in the drops analytics bots so uh, kyle samani <laughs> just unsubscribed from terra money i was like turn out the lights people yeah you know one thing i was thinking about remember we're looking at those tokenomics allocations and that how it was going up for community and the 55 percent section it was all community yeah. that's what builds these kind of frog nations and i mean i'm not I'm saying not in a negative way. I'm saying in a positive way, but that's what builds all these kind of fan fan bases yep. around projects. Yep. So that's probably why that number's gone up. Yeah. You know, over the last year or two. Yeah. I hey, by the way, um, this is on my wall. I'll go ahead and put a link to it. Um, I started following uh Solomon Crypto. He did this awesome thread on protocol uh uh controlled value. And um, it was inside of another thread about Frax's strategy and moves, which, um, you know, Frax is launching a, a time-weighted uh, AMM uh, soon called Frax Swap. And the brilliance of this move to me is a couple of things. First of all, um, a time, so uh, just a quick explanation, although Haim does a, a much better job than I do of explaining it. Um, the reason for time-weighted average swaps are when someone has to sell or move a lot of tokens, right? 10, $25 million worth, a million dollars worth. They can't do it anywhere on regular exchanges because the they're going to take a huge hit uh, on slippage uh, for those trades. 
So the time-weighted average trade says, okay, I got $20 million I need to sell or swap. I want to get back stable coins, but I don't care if it takes 30 days. It then bundles up all the trades into a bunch of smaller trades for you. And kind of you get this weighted average of the price you're going to get, right, over that time frame, which is a really brilliant thing. Well, why is this brilliant for Frax to do? Number one, Frax has to actually trade a lot of their token and other people's yeah. tokens. They're doing so much on uh, liquidity pools and everything else that they needed it for themselves. But how smart is it to be the place where the largest investors go to sell their tokens, right? Now your exposure to institutional is huge and you're positioning yourself for the really long-term play of, I want to be the stable coin for institutions, right? I'm the one that can handle your large trades. I'm stable, I'm strong. So anyway, Frax just continues to fucking, Sam Casmian over there just continues to blow me the fuck away with, with their, the moves they're making. It's really smart. Anyway, this is a great thread explaining protocol uh, controlled value as it relates to Faye, Olympus, Frax, and Volt, all of whom are doing some cool things in this space. By the way, um, tomorrow I'm putting out my episode with uh, Jimmy Santoro of Faye Protocol. Um, oh, cool. And that episode talks, uh, it's two interviews. Because the first interview I did with him was three days before they got before their partner Rari, their merged partner, got exploited, mm -hmm. um, and it was a lot of very much, hey, this is the exciting future we're building at Faye and Rari, the tribe they call it, um, all these cool things, you know, my standard interviews where they get to talk about what they're building and how it's going, etc. Um, three days later, they get exploited, so we decided to hold off on releasing the rah rah mm -hmm. episode. And then Joey agreed to come back last week and let me interview him, talk about the exploit, what happened, et cetera. So we're going to talk about that. But Faye and Rari have some really cool shit coming out um, and are doing some really cool things. So these are four protocols that are all doing really cool things to make sure they own their uh, value, right? That they own their liquidity, that they own what happens with their token. And it's back to what you and I were just talking about, right? It's like all these big mature steps that we're making in the space. To me, these are the protocols that are thinking these big things and doing these big things to make things, to give themselves long-term stability. Those are the ones I want, I want to earn from, right? So anyway, good stuff. I'll put a link to that in the uh, yeah, please do. show notes. That's the optimism stuff. Let's see if I've got anything else for juicy stuff for today, Joe. Oh, you sent me this, this, this crazy thread, uh, the, the, the telegram hack guy. Which one's this? The guy that said he hacked the telegram groups and has been accumulating all this data over the years and how oh, the one that was going to release all of it. And then it's yeah, back yeah, and forth. Yeah, is it signal yeah. flood or is it telegram? Right. Yeah, right. yeah. Now yeah. telegram is saying that there is no exploit. He's full of shit. Yeah. I don't see how but, it could be. So when is the date? I think it was next week, the first tranche of June, June 15th. 15th we're yeah. supposed to have the first tranche of data. And that data is going to include uh, discussions pertaining to racism and homophobia, adultery and sexual assault uh, on members of the public and those within crypto communities, those with eight to nine figures and high amounts of Twitter followers discussing rug pulls, projects intended to scam the community individuals dating from December 2019 to February 2022. And not all, that's not all killing and stealing the crypto of an individual with a group of friends coordinated through telegram. Yeah. I, I think when I see someone saying telegram hacked, I'm like, they hacked somebody's device. Yeah. You well, know, he outlines, yeah. he outlines that there was, he claims that there was a vulnerability 
in group security if they weren't set up properly, which allowed him to penetrate all of these groups and start downloading all their messages. Oh, so he could just get into the group. Yeah, he yeah. could get into the group um, and then he programmatically downloaded every message that came into the Telegram group. So let's see, June 15th, if we have some sizzling, sizzling, nasty, dirty shit coming out about VCs. Yeah, because all he would like, need is an invite link to get into a Telegram group. Right, but he know? can't... The exploit allowed him to download it without having to have X be in the group to download it, right? So, oh, so thing. people wouldn't know he was in the group, right? So he was actually in sub, you know, he claims he has all this freaking data. I mean, the next wave is interesting three assassinations, yeah, sexual assault, rape, and pedophilia, uh, invitations to orgies on private jets. Whatever he is, even if he made all this shit up, it's so entertaining the way he did it that. Uh, I, I hope he keeps the thing up. Like, I hope he makes up more shit. Not about anybody specifically, just keeps mm -hmm. the storyline going and makes shit up. Anyway, Chuck said, probably found an unprotected API key from a bot or a webhook to Telegram, and he just wrote software to get the group chat history. I don't know, but it's multiple groups. Uh, he says, an exploit in October 2019 that allowed one to access the group page with recent messages if proper permissions were not set up. At the time of this writing, the team at Telegram had been contacted about this. I've only seen two people mention this exploit. Um, so anyway, he evidently did this with a bunch of different groups and started downloading gigabytes of data. We'll see. I, I don't know if it's real, but it cracks me up anyway. Well, in some of those chats where there's like 30,000 people, I mean, you get all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I office. think he's intimating these are private influencer and VC chats. Like he's he that's what he's saying is this is these are groups of people that are VCs and influencers that are scamming people killing people, wow. screwing people, literally, you know, all kinds of stuff. So it'll be, I can't wait for June 15th. I'm like, I really want to see if, if he has the real goods, but telegram said not real, that there is no exploit. So, uh, Oh, I had no idea, but Chainlink is going to start offering staking. Right. There are already nodes in Chainlink that secure the network and people get paid for providing the data, the Oracle data. Um, they're actually going to launch staking. So I want to take a deeper dive into this, Joe, but uh, I'm actually pretty excited about this because, you know, Chainlink is pretty significant uh, in DeFi. So uh, we'll talk about that more after I have a chance to dive into it a little bit more. Um, Frax is going to buy $20 million worth of FXS. Uh, just basically, um, you know, He's out there out buying while everybody else is out trying to sell their treasuries off to have cash for continuing to operate. Sam's Sam's playing another level, man. It's like, you know, I'm starting to sound like one of those uh, Doquan lunatics, but I got to tell you, the guy is, oh, we lost Joe. Anyway, uh, when Joe comes back, I'm going to tell him goodbye. Or maybe I should just end the broadcast while he's gone. And then he comes back and we're not here. Shh, be very quiet. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. That's the show for today. We appreciate you. We love you. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I know there are hundreds of you that listen to this every day because I look at the data. You don't listen live, but you're on the podcast. You're in your car. Just please uh, take a few minutes to rate and review us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us spread the word. Joe is back as a peacock. Um, I told everybody I was going to hang up real quick and leave you. Have you? Come yeah, I was ready to go things? anyhow too, but I just didn't want to be rude and like leave. You know, kind of ghost everybody. So I come back and 
be, be try to be as charming as Bradley is. Yeah. So rate and review us, yada yada yada. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, please uh, subscribe, click the little bell, and give us a thumbs up. And as always, we love your comments and feedback. You can put them in YouTube. You can put them in LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever. You can DM me B 5 crypto on Twitter and Telegram B 5 crypto pound two one four three on uh, Discord. And um, I'm having a lot of fun with the Lens Protocol, Joe. Um, these initial social media platforms that these people are building out around this decentralized social media thing is pretty cool. I'm actually oh, impressed. Wow. So, what are you doing with it? Um, there's, um, I got an invite through a friend of mine, and um, or I got whitelisted from a friend of mine. And so I'm just playing with the the. They have a kind of a Twitter slash Facebook merge called Lenster uh, that was built on the protocol. There's a couple of other smaller ones. Um, but you know, following, checking it out, trying it out, giving it a bunch of feedback on UI and UX, but, uh, it's, uh, it's actually pretty interesting. Um, you know, they have the same problem. Every social media network has is, is how do you capture people's time away from it? Right. How do you get them? If, if I'm going to go send a message out to the world, am I going to send it on Twitter or I'm going to go over there and send it? Now, they did add the ability for everything you post on Lenster to automatically post on your Twitter feed. So that's that's pretty cool. Uh, smart move. But, you know, most people are it's just so hard to recruit people into into new networks. So, yeah. Anyway, that's all well, I got. All right, man. Well, we look forward to hearing how it works out for you later, dude. All right, dude. Talk to you.